Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. You know, it used to be science fiction back in 1997. I remember watching this movie, Face Off with Nicolas Cage and John Travolta. And, you know, it was just a movie, but hey, it became reality. Facial transplants have been done. And we're lucky enough to have Dr. David Allen in the studio. He's working at Queens Hospital after being part of the team in Cleveland that did the very first face transplant. And he's an expert in facial reconstruction. We're going to talk about how formerly impossible treatments have become reality and what else is out there in the field that might just surprise us a decade or two from now, maybe even a year or two. As always, we'll be taking your call at 941-3689, toll free from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. But even in just the few moments before we started the show, this is going to be really interesting for a lot of people out there. We now have the expertise and ability to do some amazing procedures that we previously didn't have. So, Dr. Allen, welcome to The Body Show, and thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, it's, it's fun to be on the island, and it's, it's nice to be able to share with the community here. Now, you've come from establishing a department in Cleveland. For those people who don't know, so you go to medical school, and what else do you do? How do you train to become a facial reconstructive surgeon? What is that, what is that training like, and, and how many years is it? So after medical school, you do a residency in, in the field of surgery. I spent a year doing general surgery. Then I did four years doing head and neck surgery as a specific sort of subspecialty. And then I followed that up with an extra year of a facial plastic reconstructive surgery fellowship. So, you know, medical school, four years, plus an extra five, six years of training after that. Uh, and then I joined uh, as a clinical instructor at UCLA for a short period of time before I took the position at the Cleveland Clinic. And now I'm 14 years into my practice there. So it, it, these things are, you know, when it comes to the sort of standard things, it's the five, six years of extra training. The interesting thing about fields like this is that there's always an element of innovation, and so you're learning every single day. And and the things that we would apply to patients 12 years ago, five years ago, three years ago are all uh, sort of a work in progress. So I always joke that there's never an end point to it. Every single day there's a new technique or new thing you can approach to help people. Well, now... It's it's amazing to see some of the photos. And for those of you, you know, you're listening, you can't see the pictures, but I got to tell you, they're pretty awesome. Just to see the difference in someone's life that you can make. Tell us a little bit about some of these early transplants that you did. And then then we'll talk a little more about what you're doing here in the islands and, and how this how we have the need to have these types of surgeries, mainly for, in this case, a lot of head and neck cancer you mentioned. But walk me through some of these early days of a full facial transplant. You know, you mentioned that the, the whole process encouraged you to do some studies to find out really what does society think about people and what what is the importance of a face? Well, I, I think we have a burden in society of cancers within the head and neck that in the past we didn't have any great ways to reconstruct people with. Probably in the early 80s, there developed this technique of what we call microvascular transfer of tissue. And what that basically is is that we were able to take other parts of your body and isolate the little blood vessels and nerves to them and then move them to your face and use them to reconstruct the face. 
use your leg bones to rebuild your jaw, use skin from other parts of your body to rebuild your throat. And, and this type of sort of internal transplant surgery really changed the way we take care of patients with complex head and neck cancers. That's what initially got me interested in the field. That's what I trained to do. And that was my practice for the first four or five years I was at the Cleveland Clinic. As you do something, anything in life, you first like the things that are good about it. But over time, you learn their limitations. More and more, as I started getting more and more complicated patients coming to see me, you started to realize that although these reconstructions are wonderful ways to rebuild the form of a face, they weren't ideal at rebuilding function. Because the most amazing thing about our face, when we laugh, when we smile, when we blink, is the not just the form of it, but it's the elaborate and intricate connection it has to your brain. The fact that your brain can sort of spontaneously laugh and smile and, and, and make all these facial expressions, that's what truly gives the face its sort of mimetic life. When you do these transplant surgeries, we didn't have any good way of connecting it to your brain. And so what we found is that when patients had really severe central facial injuries, they were missing their mouth, their lips, their nose, their eyelids, we were hitting a roadblock in what we could reconstruct with traditional in-your-own-body transplant surgeries. And so that's where the idea came about that, well, if you can't build it, what if you could just replace it with somebody else? We've been doing solid organ transplantation for decades now, sure. starting with the Heart kidney. Heart transplant, kidney, liver, you Absolutely. name it, lung, lots of different things. Right. Okay. So then came the ethical challenge, is that is your face worth being on a lifetime of immunosuppression, having medical risks and things associated with it? So uh, everything sort of, although technically in the lab we could achieve these outcomes, whether it would be really appropriate to apply to a human population, that's something that had to go through years of vetting with ethics boards and committees and things. And, and part of it required us to reassess in our mind for our patients, what does it mean to not have a face? The hardest thing to explain to somebody is that you'd never really know what your life would be without a face because no one's ever had to live a single day without it. And as I started taking care of patients who were missing their face, it started becoming very clear to me that for many of them, it was a fate worse than death in their mind. You know, when you put forward to them severe risks of immunosuppression and infection and organ failure and all these other things, they were like, you know, Dr. Alam, you're, you're giving me choices about things that may shorten my life, things that may make me have some medical problems in the future. That's under the presumption that I actually have a life. But I don't ever leave my home with the physical disfigurement I have. I've lost all connection to my family, and, and there are many days I wish that I weren't here. And so when that sort of perspective sort of came upon to the ethics boards, they were like, no, now we can begin to understand this. And it was only after doing the transplant cases that I fully understood, kind of cart before the horse a little bit, how truly it changed the lives of these patients. You know, it's a rare circumstance where you take care of somebody for months and years, the same patient. You know, you exchange Christmas presents with them. They know your families. They know this. It's, and you get to kind of see this evolution that rarely do you see in medicine. Um, and in retrospect now, as you said, some of the more recent work we're doing now begins to think about other patients. Every single person out there who's got a scar on their face that's, or has a, a Bell's palsy and one side of their face doesn't work as well. It's very hard for them to convey to society what an incredible impact there is. You know, they don't pass what I call the grocery store test. Every day 
they feel they have to explain their disfigurement. And if there's an opportunity or a way that you can take that little bit away from them, that stigmata, that burden, that cross to bear, whatever you want to say it is, it can make an enormous impact. So, you know, I started as a plastic surgeon working on reconstructing people. Now I realize it's sort of restoring normal in some sense. And so that's kind of the evolution of how transplants sort of came through. The technical element of doing it for surgeons who've done hundreds of microvascular transplants is simply some time in a laboratory, working out sort of the kinks and details of how to do it with a human face instead of transferring your leg to rebuild your face. But that part was actually quite quick. You know, we went from, you know, the ethics board saying we could do it to within six months having the technical know-how to do it because, you know, the the 20-year history of doing microvascular transplant surgery that has been done across the country and the world, you know, is something we had on our side. So you mentioned that there's been an evolution in this whole process of going from taking part of your own body to reconstruct part of your face to really noticing there's limitations and you have to look towards someone else to to be able to donate when unfortunately they've passed on their actual facial features to another person who doesn't have that ability to have a face. And a few years back, there was a case that, you know, a lot of people remember. It wasn't the first facial transplant, but it was a very notable one. The woman who unfortunately was attacked by a chimpanzee and she lost a lot of her face and she was been on the news and, you know, always had a veil and couldn't you couldn't see her there were a lot of people who might have been curious but it wasn't something you were able to to visually see in the media and she became i think the the second transplant that you did and you know you mentioned even before the show how this impacted her daughter her previous best friend and what that whole process did to allow her daughter to have a relationship again with her mom it kind of echoes the whole thing that you're describing of society really imposing the need to have a face in order to feel as though you could communicate and or be be in a relationship with this person, regardless of what that relationship is. What was that evolution? You you watched it. You took care of this woman. What was that evolution in that process? Sure. I, it, was, it was ironic that or kind of serendipity that six weeks after we did the first transplant is when she was injured in Connecticut. And she got transferred to my care, again, right on the throes of having completed the other surgery. Uh, and again, I'd say that in all honesty, I still didn't understand the full ramifications of even the surgery we had done just a few weeks earlier, in a sense. But it was through the second patient and watching her interactions with her family that, as you said, many of these things became so uh, clear in my mind. So uh, I'll take a step back. You know, every single person, their socialization, their their love for their family, their spouse, their children, all of these things are based on a very fundamental part of our brain that allows us to recognize almost 200,000 individual faces. And if you think about that, the amount of actual data that our brain uses to process is very little. Everybody has two eyes, they have a nose, they have lips, and the proportions of these are actually quite similar amongst people. So how an individual can tell 200,000 faces apart is that it's a very important hardwired part of our brain because that's how way back in caveman days or even say we could recognize our children. 
that's how we could develop family relationships and something that actually extends to other species as well, not just humans. And so it's a fundamental part of our brain and how our chemistry works in our brain. What we found, in a sense, is that once you lose your face, this connection starts to break down. And so Charlie, who was the lady who was attacked by the chimpanzee, her daughter, she was a single mother. She raised this girl her entire life. They were, as they said, thick as thieves. They were the best of friends through their whole life. After the injury, the daughter would come, and she spent time with Charlie, but it was clear that her face was so badly disfigured that she couldn't see her mother there anymore. And so she ended up actually just calling her, trying to talk to her, using other cues, whether it be sound or other things, to connect to the parts of her brain that she felt would be her mother. And it was it was telling that there was one story where they had an NBC News interview or one of these interviews on the networks where, you know, the reporter asked her, what do you see when you see your mother? And although she said, I see her, I asked her afterwards if she believed that, and she said, no, I can't. I've lost my mother in this thing. And so we looked at this from the standpoint of what people look at when they look at people with these severe facial disfigurements. And there's actually sort of these neurochemical pathways that when you see someone you love or you haven't seen them in a long time, how you get sort of the butterflies in your stomach or the feelings of emotion that overwhelm you, that's because their facial recognition ties to these other parts of your brain. Without a face, it's like you've lost this key to the door to the house that is all these other relationships. And Charlie's daughter lost it. And the most remarkable part for me was that after the surgery, you have to think about this. This is not her mother's face anymore. It is a completely different face. Yet the simple fact that she had a face allowed the daughter to develop a relationship with her again and sort of mend this sort of incredible sense of loss. And so, you know, I, I go back and there's a lot of ethical protocols of whether you should do a face transplant on a blind patient. They're never going to see the face that you give them. Charlie, who was attacked by the chimpanzee, was blind. Yet she may be even a bigger beneficiary of it than the other patients because being blind, she's already isolated from the world. Then when no one wants to be in a room with her anymore, it's, it's an incredible sense of sensory deprivation. And now having a face, her daughter, her caretakers, everybody kind of can be there. And, and we always, I, I, I tell my residents and fellows who I train now that as a reconstructive surgeon, only a small percentage of the surgery you do is for the patient. The rest of it is for society and how that patient relates to society because that socialization is what makes us human beings. It makes us who we are. Well, and that gets back to the fact that it kind of does go back to the patient because although we're doing it for society, the way that that individual can interact with society and get the relationships and get the closeness and the camaraderie that they need, it really does transform their life. You know, it it can take somebody from having a devastating injury to someone who can still function in society and feel like society values them as a person and doesn't constantly look and say, ooh, did you see that? And wow, I can't believe that. I mean, it really, we all act like kids at times. You know, I find that sometimes you avert your eyes, you don't look, you try not to be the person who stares. And, and yet, it's so important for that person to feel validated as a human being, as a person. Right. Absolutely. And, and it's, it's an important thing for us to realize as observers is that 
you know, I, I'm in a healthcare profession as you are. We deal with nurses and, and physicians and other people who care for people all the time. And one of the common things I hear is that, look, I don't look at people's disfigurements. I care for them as a person on the inside. But I think some of this data shows that there are certain disfigurements that are so bad that we're hardwired to look at them. We're hardwired to sort of ostracize or or eliminate these patients from sort of normal socialization, regardless of whether we want to or not. And if we can sort of overcome that because of our compassion or clinical interests in these patients, that still doesn't under sort of cut what's happening to them on a day-to-day basis in a sense. And so, you know, again, the lessons from these major huge transplant cases in my personal practice and for those around me have translated to simple things. Patients with accidents, with facial trauma, with with cancer surgeries, who have a skin cancer on their face. You know, I think as in my profession, you have to relentlessly pursue the normal is what I say, is that that's what you owe to your patients in a sense. Whether they have a big cancer or whether they have a little tiny scar on their face, the psychological impact of that is much larger than we fully understand. And it's something that's impossible to put into a number. It's impossible to measure in a study. And it, only the patients who sort of suffer those injuries can truly begin to quantify in their mind what it is. And yet, I, I, I think hopefully if we can change that paradigm, we'll, we'll have a, help a lot more people. Well, and that's why we're so lucky to have someone like you here able to bring these services to the islands that we may have not have had the expertise to even do before. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and you're listening to The Body Show. I'm here in the studio with Dr. Daniel Allum, and he is a reconstructive surgeon from Cleveland Clinic, actually, that's where you just came from, to here at Queens Hospital. And when we come back after this quick break, we're going to talk some more about who are the types of people that he sees here in the islands? Who benefits from these types of procedures? And what are some of the techniques? Because, you know, it's still, we, we talked a little bit earlier about how even the medical profession, even doctors, don't really fully understand what's happening in the reconstructive and restorative surgery field. And that there's so much, so many exciting things happening and so much for us to learn. So if you have any questions or if you're curious about reconstructive surgery, or even if, you know, you had something that you might have wanted to have surgery for years ago, and now you're concerned there might be an asymmetry of your face, or you think it might look a little different than you wanted to, hey, you've got a chance right now to ask an expert what their thoughts are and whether or not this could be something that you might even want to take a closer look at. You can join our conversation at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Next on The Conversation, media watcher and HBU professor John Hart looks at the last-minute, Kucinich-funded robocall on the Maui Initiative and will consider the final national poll on the GOP Democratic deadlock going into Election Day. We'll talk tomorrow morning at 8 on The Conversation. Richmond, Virginia was once the center of the American domestic slave trade. Families were broken up, husbands and wives, parents and children were separated, and they were taken to the Lower South, where they were put to work in the cotton and sugar fields. 
I'm Sarah McConnell. Join me for With Good Reason, Thursdays at 6.30 on Hawaii Public Radio. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Whole Foods Market Hawaii, Ferraro Choi, and Ulupono Initiative. Aloha. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Daniel Allum. He's a head and neck cancer and reconstructive surgeon at Queens Medical Center, and he serves as the clinical professor of surgery at the University of Hawaii John A. Burns School of Medicine. We are lucky enough to have him here in the studio before the break. We were talking a little bit about the amazing ability to transplant a face, but that may not be something that's done all the time. And there's a lot of people who have other sorts of injuries or deformities that might have occurred, cancer, accidents, etc. And we're going to talk a little bit about how these types of techniques can apply to those folks as well. If you've ever had a problem or a concern, maybe you've had Bell's palsy or some other condition and you've been told, nope, that part of your face won't move again, you might be surprised. It actually could. You can join our conversation at 941-3689, toll-free from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. Now, Dr. Allen, you've been here just a few months, and yet you've already had quite a few cases right here in Hawaii where people have needed your services for reconstructive, reconstructive surgery. What sort of situations have required your expertise? Most of the practice right now involves sort of what Queens is trying to develop, which is a head and neck cancer treatment center. Uh, as of the before we got here, majority of this care needed to be done off island. Patients with complex head and neck cancers, patients with tumors in the area that needed surgery and reconstruction would be sent to UCLA or UCSF or University of Washington. Um, and so part of their recruitment process and discussions with me was that, look, you know, there's a couple of million people when you add all of the Hawaiian Islands plus Micronesia where this type of cancer has a relative uh, predominance and prevalence, excuse me, and none of nobody's caring for these patients. And so, you know, the classic patient, the standard thing would be somebody who developed a cancer in their mouth or their tongue and needs to have a portion of that removed. You know, a, a traditional approach might be to sort of swing a big chunk of muscle in there and disfigure them, and they won't be able to swallow and eat and these things. Um, those are the patients we operate on, and our goal is to try to restore their form, restore their function, and try to make them kind of pass that grocery store test where they could have half their tongue gone and we could rebuild them and no one would know sitting at a grocery store because they could have intelligible speech, they would eat and do things normally. That's That's... The primary focus of what we're doing, I think there's a lot of other opportunities there as well. I mean, our practice in Cleveland evolved to, you know, educating physicians from the other angle. There are patients who have strokes, who have faces that don't move. They have Bell's palsy and have paralysis of their faces. They have uh, surgical other issues where they've had a surgery done before and had a trauma, but nobody ever kind of really put them back together and they sort of healed. These sort of longstanding facial disfigurements and longstanding paralyses are amenable to reconstruction. Now that we can kind of move tissues around, you can really help these people. And it's remarkable, I find, that, you know, 
oftentimes it's 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 avenues such as this where you have an opportunity to really talk to the public where somebody who's at home and who had a stroke and has spent their whole life being told that, well, there's nothing they can do and they're forever going to have this sort of paralyzed face, those are the patients that come in and we have actually really good procedures that can help their face restore balance, help their face restore movement, and kind of restore many of these sort of social things that we've talked about earlier already. Um, and so I, I, I enjoy these opportunities to sort of talk to the public in that sense because it's ironically something that they don't teach even in medical school. They don't teach us a lot in medical school. Right. <laughs> and this is one of the things. But I think a lot has changed since, boy, since I went to medical school, I'm right. sure yourself as well. Let's talk about Bell's palsy, for right. example. I can think already of a couple of folks that I see who have Bell's palsy and they have this facial paralysis and it's on half of their face. And when they talk, only half their mouth moves. And when, they, when they're smiling, only half their face smiles. How would something like that be amenable to treatment? What well, would you do? We couple things is you you begin to look at the different functions of the face. So, for example, people with Bell's palsy can't close their eyes, and they risk their cornea from being injured and whatnot. There are these procedures where we can put a very tiny little piece of platinum actually into your upper lid that will allow you to close it because the eye muscle that opens your eye still works in these patients. And so you can give somebody a safe eye by providing them eye closure. It's an office procedure. It takes 15 minutes. What is, how, is pla- how does that work? Well, what you do is that you allow the platinum's weight that gets placed into your eyelid to, by gravity, close the eyes, and then the muscle that opens the eye continues to open it. So, again, simple 15-minute office procedure solves an important problem for safety and function for these individuals. The biggest stigmata that patients who have a paralysis of their face worry about is their inability to smile. And and we've developed some surgeries using the same principle of transplanting tissue. We can now transplant a small muscle in your neck that you don't really need. It's sort of an accessory little muscle into your face so that now we can restore the ability to smile. And you can take patients who haven't smiled for years and allow them to smile again. And, and, and so, you know, the, these are the types of things that it, it was related to the thing we said earlier, is like say the evolution of face transplants and how we're continuing to learn. Part of the process is that these fields are on in evolution. You know, there may be a day where we can grow muscle and we won't even have to transplant that muscle and we can regrow the muscle in your face that's not moving. But until the day comes, these other options are there. And again, I've seen hundreds of patients in my time on the mainland who have these injuries or paralyses that generally are told, you know, I'm sorry, ma'am, or sir, you're going to have to live with this because it's a nerve injury and there isn't anything we can do. Um, That's the type of, you know, audience or target group of patients that I think there's a great opportunity to help. They're out there. and, And, you know, it's interesting, a young person who had a Bell's palsy, you know, the stigmata for society is they've had a stroke. And so, yeah, they kind of look, I mean, unless you know the differences in the forehead muscles, et cetera, it right. kind of looks like they've had a stroke. For, for, for their friends, their family, they're explaining the rest of their life why. So beyond this sort of I don't look normal and everybody stares at me in any social setting, there's this like other medical sort of uh, things that they have to carry with them that, oh, you know, why did they have a stroke? And they have to continually explain away that, no, they just had this poor unfortunate incident where their their face became paralyzed. Again, if you can make people 
sort of normal enough that they can sort of function without constantly having to explain their disfigurement, you can really transform their lives in many ways. Now, Bell's palsy would be one situation. You're not actually regrowing nerves. You're taking a nerve or a muscle, actually, from somewhere else and allowing it to take over that function. Right, and you're attaching it to another donor nerve in the area where you can get, or you're attaching it to the nerve to the other side of the face, which still is normal. And in a sense, I, I, I joke that we're always just doing construction. So some of it's plumbing, some of it's electrical. And so you know, you, you, you transfer a muscle up there with a blood supply. You hook up the plumbing, you hook up the blood supply, then you need to hook up the electrical, so then you hook it up to another nerve so that it works in a sense. Um, you know, if we could catch these patients early after they have a nerve injury, you can usually reconnect the nerve and make it work. But sadly, it's so under-recognized as a problem that can be treated, we have patients come in years after their paralysis. And at this point, all their nerve endings and muscle end plates are gone. They've sort of eroded away, and we have to start fresh and rebuild everything. But it's not like we don't have the ability to do that. It just is, unfortunately, what's come to with medical care today. Well, and I mean, I'm just as guilty. Boy, starting off and practicing, and I've seen plenty of patients with Bell's palsy saying, no, I really don't think that there is any sort of surgical way to fix this. And yet now, hey, we're finding out, yes, there is. How long have you been, how long have these procedures been available? Well, that, that's the thing. They, they, this particular surgery that I showed you where we transferred muscle, we've only been doing it for a few years. Well, I don't feel that bad anymore. Right. <laughs> I mean, having been practicing for about 15 years now, I figure, okay, so the first several years, I was right. We didn't have this capacity. Now we do. So now there is a reason to start taking a look at these individuals and saying there's something we can do for you. Right. And, and that's, that's the, I think, the part all of us in medicine enjoy. Not only are you taking care of people, but anybody who I think does that well looks at the problems in their own practice. You know, I'm always heartened uh, by something I was told by my mentor is that you want to find failures in your successes, is that what you think you're doing well in somebody, inherently there are things that you can do better in the process. And so this is a good example that what we used to do when your face was paralyzed and sagging is we would do like a little unilateral facelift on you and sort of sling it up. And that was an improvement. And you could sort of rest on the laurels that, hey, I've made this person's life better. Terrific. Or you could look at it and say, you know, that's really not a solution. That's an improvement. But is there a better way? I mean, what they really want to do is smile. And so you know, I've spent my whole career and the careers of my colleagues are similarly in the same vein, is that we're trying always to sort of, you know, find a better mousetrap or a better solution for the, you know, the problems we run into. And and, and, and that's this. And, and it's, again, conversations like this, conversations amongst physicians, conversations amongst patients. You know, interestingly, that patient uh, – some of the patients that are operating on the mainland are actually going to fly here to get their subsequent – care done because it's all a stage sort of process. And, you know, I've always thought they've, they've offered to do this, but I haven't found a venue. But there may be some sort of, you know, venue through the neurology communities to talk to some of these patients and let them meet some of these patients as well. Because, again, it, it's this communication that's the part of medicine that really allows us to improve our care. Well, and I think there's a lot to be said for hearing firsthand from somebody who has experienced this. I mean, we may all think, okay, 
So you want to be able to smile. And if you have had something like Bell's palsy or a serious head and neck tumor, I mean, our goal as physicians might be eradicate tumor. And we may not think about how important it is to be able to smile. And yet, I figure if you go a whole day and you don't smile at all, people are going to ask you what's wrong. Are you okay? Are you sad? I mean, there's this whole other element of how we might respond to someone who doesn't have that ability. And we don't realize what it's like because we're not that person. To hear from them how important it has been and what it has done for them is immeasurable. So when they come around, let us know. We should have some people on the show, but also maybe provide a visible venue because that also is a way that people can see the difference and the way that the muscles move. Now, head and neck tumors, that's another area that I think we have a lot of folks who previously might have had to go to the mainland to have some of the definitive surgical treatment. And now we have that capacity to do that here. What are the common, if there are common, head and neck tumors that people are getting that you're seeing that are amenable to doing some of this reconstructive surgery? Are we talking about smoking-related tumors? Are there other types of tumors that I'm just trying to think, who would get these and how common is it? It's probably more common than I think. Sure. Uh, I I think the majority of them are smoking-related. We're talking about tumors in your oral cavity, tongue cancers, cancers of your palate, cancers of your voice box, cancers that are uh, skin cancers that are large. Hawaii, you know, has an enormous sun burden in it, and there's a lot of sort of cancers where, you know, larger skin cancers where you do these types of reconstructions. And and finally, you know, uh, there are other uses in sort of Micronesian populations, betel nut, et cetera, which cause particular types of tumors in your palate and sinuses that, that are amenable to these types of reconstruction. I'm going to go back to actually an interesting thing you pointed out, which I think is kind of the goal of what we're trying to do here. The institute at Queens is is multidisciplinary. I'm a fat plastic reconstructive surgeon. My, my partner's a head and neck cancer surgeon. Uh, we have physical therapists, other people, and, and I and I hearken. I, I was interested in the position because there can't be a start and a stop to the care of these patients that's so truncated that we leave gaps in their care. And, and I was hearkening by something a patient told me in a sense. Um, when you have a big head and neck cancer tumor. You mentioned the fact that we've always focused on getting rid of your cancer, as if that's the ultimate holy grail endpoint of what we're trying to do. But I look at it slightly differently. When you walk into that doctor's office and they tell you you have cancer, what has happened is we've put an enormous burden of unhappiness upon you. And simply curing the cancer is a sort of anatomical success. But if we disfigure you, we've never actually taken that burden of unhappiness away from you. We've kind of created a new one. We've created a new one to replace it. And so although we as physicians can say, Mrs. Jones, Mrs. Smith, you should be happy that you no longer have cancer, we can't introduce happiness into your life until you feel that you've become normal in a sense. And so, you know, what we're trying to evolve through this process is that your care begins from social workers who manage your home environment before you come in, to the surgeons who take care of you, to the physical therapists afterwards. And 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 this sort of institute we have here is 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 akin to what's happening nationally in medicine, that the idea that, you know, it's not about individual physicians in the care. It's about understanding that we treat diseases and conditions. And 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 tumors and cancers in the head and neck require a number of caregivers to get involved together. Uh, and so tying two of the things that you've said 
that's what we're really trying to do here. These patients are here. They have these cancers. This is the type of patient we treat. Somebody with a, say, I'll give you an example, a betel nut-involved tumor of their cheek sinus. You know, that patient, we tell them they have a cancer, but then they're going to have their whole cheek taken out. And we simply can't say you're cured of your cancer and leave them. And unfortunately, that was happening to a greater extent than anybody would sort of like. Or they were being sent other places where someone would do the surgery and then they would leave them. And they'd come back to the island and all the rehabilitation that they would need and all the other things they would need. These are simply things that can't be done in the way they were being done off-island, other places, et cetera, because you didn't have continuity. These are patients that need years to sort of feel restored back to a sense of normalcy. And so that that's kind of who we're looking to help, and that's the kind of process we're looking to try to do is that, you know, take a patient. I'll give you an example of somebody who had a betel nut tumor in their cheek sinus. We operated on them, reconstructed them, got them to the where they look normal, but there are certain things. For example, their entire tear duct was taken out. So we put a little tube in there temporarily to make the tear duct work and regrow in a sense. And then six weeks later, we take that tube out and then we sort of check the eyelid function and then we sort of, you know, kind of follow things to their conclusion. And and, and I think that's the great opportunity of this institute and all my partners and Dr. Clem and, and all the radiation therapists and the physical therapists is that we have really a, a kind of a new way to look at the care of these problems in this island and and and, and not leave patients undertreated leave patients halfway there with simply a flag on the ground that says oh but your cancer is cured you know but you're not normal and we haven't really done you a service and 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 I think if as physicians we take a step back and say it's about restoring that unhappiness we put upon them the first day we saw them with the cancer, you're going to be far better in caring for your patients in the long run. And that's really the key. That's that's what we want to try and do is provide the best of all care for everyone that we see and also that environment. You know, we talk about having people go to the mainland, and if it's necessary, that's a great thing. If there's specialties there that we don't have, you should go. But the rest of your environment, your family, your friends, your social support network, the other people that help you in a day-to-day basis that are part of your life may not be able to make that journey with you. And then you don't have that social support because you're off on your own with maybe one family member or two, and you just don't have that network that you're missing. And so now we're going to have the ability to provide that that ability to take care of your cancer, if that's what it is, or whatever the situation might be that caused you to be disfigured, but also keep you in your own community where you can have that network and you can have that support and you can have that follow-up, which is one of the, the nice things that will be possible. So you come back and you have the rehab services, you have the social worker, you have speech therapy, occupational therapy, all on one team. It certainly sounds like It's kind of like we're moving forward in medicine by moving backwards and thinking more like people and less like doctors in a way to make it a much more humanistic approach. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Daniel Allum. We're talking about reconstructive surgery and who might be a candidate for this and what sort of amazing things are out there right now that weren't there 10 years ago. And when we come back, we're going to talk about where we headed. We've kind of had a little hint already, but what's going to happen in the next 10 years in this field of 
reconstructive surgery and plastic surgery. If you want to join us, you can, 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. I'm Ryan Ozawa. And I'm Bert Lum. Next time on Bite Marks Cafe, we'll learn about a new startup accelerator at the University of Hawaii called Accelerate UH. How will the program kickstart entrepreneurship on campus with startups run by UH students, faculty, or staff? That's next time on Bite Marks Cafe, Wednesday at 5. For National Novel Writing Month, New Letters on the Air features award-winning Ozarks author Daniel Woodrell, whose often dark narratives are acts of discovery. I did early in my career try to outline, but it just was pointless exercise, really, because all it guaranteed is not going to be much like the outline. <laughs> Daniel Woodrell and his 2013 novel, The Maid's Version, on New Letters on the Air. Tuesday evening at 6.30, following Marketplace. Aloha. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Daniel Allum. He is a facial head and neck reconstructive surgeon at Queens Hospital. Recently come from Cleveland. Perfect time to leave Cleveland. I'll tell you, weather there is lots of fun. My phone still has the weather app from Cleveland. You should get rid of that, yeah. No, it actually reminds me how I'm happy I (laughs) am to be here. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, we are so lucky to have you because, you know, before the break, we were talking a little bit about the team approach to taking care of people who have a serious illness that could be disfiguring. And, you know, it's not just head and neck cancers. I'm sure there's injuries that can also affect the face and the appearance of the face, and in particular, the function of the face. And the idea is that we get this team approach. You are a member of a team that we can all together work on trying to help somebody to get back to the life that they had, if not better than ever, that maybe we didn't know we could do these things to help them. Now, part of what you've brought to the islands is this is this ability, the the surgical expertise, the technical expertise to do these types of procedures. Where do you see the Institute developing further? What are what's next? What's the next step? I, I think there's there's two parts to that. One is sort of the the technical evolution of what we do. Um, and that's that's a work in progress every day. We develop new surgeries and our patients are our teachers. And as we learn how well they do, things like the transplant where we learn how much of a transformative thing is with our patients, teach us how we take care of people who have a small scar on their face and how it imp- impacts their life. So from a philosophical sense, that evolution never ends in a sense. And so there are technical little things that we can continue to evolve in. I think facial transplantation, right now there's been 32 done in the world. And so it's something that's no longer face-off, science fiction, something, but it's it's reality. And now we can begin to look at what are the better ways to evolve these surgeries to make them better? How can we work on the immunosuppression so that people don't have to be on these medications for their entire life? And and what are better ways to do the elements of the surgery, hook up nerves, hook up things to sort of get the best possible function out of it? I mean, and those are sort of the technical elements. And, you know, each of these little surgeries I talked to that we developed at the clinic is just another little thing. And there's hundreds of surgeons each adding another little brick into the wall that sort of or, or the monument that is this type of surgery. But I think there's some human things in the evolution that are really, we talked about it sort of a step back, but to take a step back to move forward in a sense. As we become so subspecialized in medicine, I mean, look at me, I am a facial reconstructive surgeon. 
you know, my mom used to joke whenever she called me about a blood pressure medication, I didn't know what any of them were. And she said, you know, I thought we trained a doctor and all we got was somebody who just, you know, does one tiny little thing. That's what medicine has become. But where it's lost in that transformation is communication. And, and, and you go to a specialist and you go to a doctor and there's just no tying all these people together. And so it, it becomes our obligation in sort of medicine to look at institutes like this as a way that people interested in caring from a particular problem from multiple facets can actually cohabitate and live together and share the patients together in a sense. And so the cancer surgeon, the reconstructive surgeon, the physical therapist, the social worker, we all live in one place and, 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 and the gaps disappear. Patients suffer because of gaps. They suffer because they get a jaw reconstructed, and then nobody ever puts teeth in it. And so then they have a brand-new jaw, but they never get to dental rehabilitation. I did a large study when I was at UCLA. We looked at 400 mandible reconstructions. Only 11% of the people actually got to getting teeth after that. That's a failure in the system. And so here we have this opportunity where it's not just all about wizardry of like a brand-new surgery and something we can offer. Sometimes it's the simple solution of doctors and nurses and caregivers finding the avenue to talk to each other. The electronic medical record has helped, but I think it's the creation of institutes like this where we, you know, it, it sort of makes it easy for the patients. One stop shopping. You come in, and then the whole you're like on a pathway to your endpoint, and not this sort of staccato. Oh, you see Doctor X, and then he's done. Okay, I, I did your surgery, ma'am. I don't need to see it anymore. You need to go to see this other doctor, and you sort of get lost in the shovel. So in, in some strange way, I think that's going to be the greatest advancement in medicine in the next few years. You know, we, 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 we use the 70s and 80s and 60s as the growth of specialization in medicine. You know, my subspecialty of medicine really didn't exist 20 years ago. And it's something that our academy is that old, and we've evolved and sort of grown into, you know, one person per state doing this type of thing. And while that may be great in that we now reach these little outer branches of trees in terms of what we can do and like these fine-tuned little delicate operations, it's bad if we're isolated there, you know, if we're on an island for a pun for the, you know, the Hawaiian. Because we don't want to be on an island when it comes to our health care. We want to be able to have all of the resources. All right. We've got a caller on the line. We have Don from Eva Beach. Welcome to The Body Show. Hi. How's it? Doing great. How are you today? Um, I'm okay. I, I kind of got this problem, okay? When you guys touched on a little bit of brain tumor right there. Um, okay, I got on the... Um, whenever I turn my head to the left, it's like somebody's ripping out my scalp. You know, and I can feel like... like uh, a, a, like I guess like a packet of water, like a blister thing in, inside of my head. And to make matters worse, I don't have any medical insurance yeah so this is the best medical advice i can get is from you guys do you have any idea what that might be well i'm curious don because you mentioned that you said the word brain tumor uh are you thinking you have one i don't know i mean i i don't know what this thing is I, i've had this pain now for like um maybe about three weeks now and it only happens when i turn to the left so somebody told me oh it's because you have like um, you need, like, you know, your neck muscles are tight or, or I got, like, some, something's wrong with my, my neck, yeah? And so um, I went in and got a massage and everything, and, and I still have it, you know? So I'm, I'm kind of like, 
freaking out because, like I said, I don't have any medical insurance to go check it out to see what it really is. And, you know, God forbid it's something terminal, yeah? Well, I'll tell you some good news, Don, is that, you know, we are lucky enough here in the islands to have a great network of community health centers that help take care of people, insurance or not. Now, it's mentioned you're calling from Eva Beach, and I'm certain that there are centers out near Eva Beach. I know that closer to town there is Kalihi Palama. I know that um, Waikiki Health Center also, they have the ability, any of the state-funded health centers has the ability to take care of you even if you don't have insurance. And in fact, you might qualify for some insurance that they can help you to apply for, whether it be Medicaid or Quest or something along those lines. So from the insurance perspective, you can get this checked out. Okay, so that should reassure you that you don't have to wait until it's something, quote, terminal, and I don't think that it is, um, in order to get something checked out. But you do bring up a really good point. And, you know, what I'd like to spend a few moments talking about is the the concept of nerve pain, because we're talking a little bit about reconstructive surgery. We're talking about how nerves function and how they don't function. And part of what Don mentioned is he turns to one side and it feels like there's a ripping or tearing in his scalp. And that kind of burning, tearing pain tends to be more related to nerves than it does to muscles. And so we've been talking about reconstructing nerves, you know, and part of what people lose when they have Bell's palsy or some other type of major, major disfigurement is they lose that nerve connection to a particular area. Good news, Don, you have the nerve connection. Unfortunately for you, it sounds like one of your friends might have been right. If that nerve gets pinched or compromised, it can give you that weird, ripping, tearing, burning sensation. And that's unfortunate, but it can be something that they check out for you. And if it's something minor, they can they can obviously treat it. And hopefully you'll feel better and you can turn to your left and not have that happen. But let's talk for a few moments, uh, Dr. Alum, about nerves. Because when we talk about connecting nerves to one another, intervening early so that you can you can actually physically stitch one nerve to another. Can nerves function and can they regrow? I think, you know, the caller brings up an interesting thing that we are good at hooking up nerves that are outflowing from your brain, that attach to muscles, because we know that the information in them is specifically going to that muscle. So we're good at restoring function in paralyses. When it comes to sensory nerve problems, where you have a nerve that, say, goes to your neck or to a particular part of your face which got cut or injured or pinched, and then there is a sort of abnormal impulse going back to your brain, the problem is is that when you hook up that nerve with a graft of any kind, it still doesn't give the brain the right information of the map. It basically says, well, somewhere along where this nerve is attaching, something is giving an impulse. So it restores the electrical connection, but not the map. And so it's unfortunately not very successful in most cases. Usually in a case like the scholars, if there's a particular thing pinching the nerve and you can decompress it or remove the offending structure, you can improve their symptoms. But when it comes to a a sensory nerve that's detached and reattaching it, the results are never that good. And and that that is one of these sort of holy grails of what we're looking at in terms of trying to improve, whether it be face transplants or any type of reconstruction, is that numbness and sensory loss and abnormal sensory feelings like burning and pain continue to be things that we don't have a good handle on. Even if I hook up a nerve to it, let's say your nerve to your face was disconnected and I reattached it. 
Now the problem is if I touch your chin, I touch your cheek, I touch other places, everything sends the same impulse back to your brain. Your brain doesn't have a map anymore, so it can't figure out where it's coming from. And there are actually a lot of circumstances where we intentionally don't reattach those nerves because we don't want to create bad information to your brain. It's better to have no information and be numb than to send bad information. This caller is an example of bad information from a nerve going to a brain resulting in pain or discomfort and misfiring. Um, so, it, it, like, for example, in some of these transplant cases, we didn't even attach the sensory nerves because we didn't want to send irregular impulses to the brain. We're great at the outflow side. You know, there's going to be some impact of some of this research on, say, spinal cord injury and some of these other things where people become paralyzed. It'll be a while until we figure out the other way. Uh, the backward route to your brain is, is remains something that, you know, that, that requires understanding the brain and its workings, which still is so far off for us. Where do you think reconstructive surgery is headed in the next five or ten years? I mean, we sort of touched a little yeah. bit about whether or not we could repair sensory nerves. We could recreate the map. In the last five years, things have dramatically improved. I never would have thought Bell's palsy and the the what I would think would be permanent facial palsy could actually be reversed, and there are some things that can be done to help that. Where else do you picture this field going in another five, ten years? Well, I, I think it has to do with the evolution of these surgeries. I, I was joking, you know, in, in, in my brief lifetime, cell phones went from these gargantuan things to I remember those little smart things that have more brain capacity than I do, in a sense. Um, What's happened is that as we've developed the ability to do these little transplantation surgeries, what we've started, when I, when, say this transplant surgery for making somebody smile, someone could have done it in 1985, but at that point the surgery was so unreliable, you were so, you had to transfer such a huge bulk of tissue, it was so underdeveloped as a surgery, that we would only do it on these severe, huge cancer reconstructive patients because they were the only people who were sick enough to need this 25-hour-long dangerous surgery. But as the surgery has become safer, surgery has become more effective, success rates have improved, patients are getting them and leaving the hospital in short order, we've now started to loosen the restrictions and broaden the indications. And so now they went from something that were, was reserved to these transplant surgeries to the sickest of all patients with the worst of all problems, to the more and more minor problems. And so now, for example, we'll do a vascularized fat transfer for somebody who's got a dent in their face just to fill it in and contour their face better. That's, in a sense, a transplant surgery, the same thing that 20 years ago we would reserve for the sickest of all people, but now you're doing it for what may be viewed as an aesthetic sort of indication because the surgery has become safer. So, you know, the cell phone went from the wealthiest person where it was the size of a truck now to everybody has a cell phone and they sort of use it. So the advancement is that as we become better at the procedures, as they become safer, we can now begin to offer them to wider indications. Now a transplant surgery to make you smile makes sense in 2014. Even that didn't make sense in 2001 because the surgery was too long and complicated and fraught with failure. And so I think the greatest thing we have to evolve is that this entire field of sort of microtransplantation surgery where we move things around your body has opened up the opportunities for a lot of unsolved problems that are much more commonplace 
and more minor necessarily, but they are still problems for the patients who have them, are amenable to it. And the next step, whether it be tissue engineering where we can make you a new muscle and these things, they'll go through that same iteration. They'll initially be used for severe, terrible problems. And then once we can make you a new little nose or a new little ear inside a jar, then if you get your ear traumatized, we'll just skin cancer, we'll just plop a new piece on right like that. But it'll always start kind of with, as inappropriately so from an ethical standpoint, from where it's not so successful in the dire needs where we do it to where we've now become commonplace and we can apply it to more indications. And so I've seen in my career over the last five years the broadening of indications for this surgery where it's no longer this grand 35-hour in the OR, 10 days in the hospital operation, two very simple things we can do and people can go home and notice relatively quick changes in their life. But it's the same surgery. It's just become better. Just gotten better at it. Quicker, better techniques, better medication. Because you mentioned, you know, sometimes you do have to take immunosuppressants or other medications after a major transplant. But if it's from your own body, hey, you don't, you know, need, that you don't need that anymore. Right. And that's, if we can do more of those types of things where you either grow your own cartilage, grow your own tissue, grow your own ear replacement, wouldn't that be wonderful? And it's funny because I think about it and I go, wow, that's probably something that's in the movies right now. And if we were to just fast forward another decade or so, and you never know, we might find out that that's kind of where we're headed. That's what we're doing. You right. can now see that they are using some of these some of these techniques to grow certain things in, in the lab, but amazing where it might head soon. Well, I, I think you know, you're inspired by some of the things. I, I joke with my colleagues who do face transplants is that for the first five years, all we would answer is that is it like face off question, and and, <laughs> and we would we would make fun of that. That's a silly question, and it doesn't have to do it. Yet, ironically, if you look at the temporal development of this field, it happened after that movie. It kind of did. It really did. And so, I mean, although we may say we have nothing to do with it and we don't believe, and that's that's that's, you know, it it's, it, the movies or science fiction test the limits of what we don't have. But they sometimes identify real problems that we do have. And it's our job is, you know, to safely and ethically and in an appropriate way continue to advance medicine to sort of reach those limits. I don't know if we'll ever get to all of them, but, you know, in my lifespan, I've seen so much dramatic change. Well, and that's a nice, inspiring note to sort of end our discussion. I want to thank you for being on the show today and sharing your expertise with us. Thank you for having me. This has been great. All right. Dr. Daniel Allum is part of the Queens Medical Center Network of Physicians, and he is in the he is in the Reconstructive Surgery and Head and Neck Cancer Program and also at the University of Hawaii, a clinical professor there as well. If you'd like to hear this show again, you can click on hawaiipublicradio.org. Follow the links to The Body Show. You can also find us on Facebook. Our engineer today is Casey. Thank you for filling in. For, uh, for David Chong, our executive producer, Beth Ann Kozlovich. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We'll see you next week. We are going to talk about some more new developments in medicine. You're sure to learn something great. We'll see you right there Monday at 5 on The Body Show. Woo!